0: The civil wars changed the lives of families all across the British Isles and inevitably children became involved not only as passive bystanders but also as child soldiers fighting in both the Royalist and Parliamentary Armies. Civil war historian Dr Ismini Pells, a departmental lecturer in local and social history at the University of Oxford has uncovered some of these children's experiences and in this programme she examines the effects of the wars, both on the children who found themselves directly in the line of fire and on those who were orphaned or made destitute because their fathers were killed or maimed during the conflict. As Dr Pells explains to publisher Mike Gibbs, these stories are often difficult to piece together and frequently forgotten by history.
1: Ismini, I recently picked up a copy of a children's historical novel which was actually published in 1847, The Children of the New Forest. It tells the tale of four orphans during the civil wars and was made into a BBC TV serial for children in the 60s and I'd forgotten how much I loved it and this led me to try to find out more about childhood experiences during and after the conflict but that's proved to be a very elusive topic to get to grips with so I'm really grateful you're here to help. It's a mystery to me why are children during the British Civil War such a neglected topic?
2: a lot of the problem is to do with the source material. So obviously we don't have many sources from the children themselves. So many contemporaries wrote about children and they observed their activities or talked about what they were doing or reported on them. But of course, a lot of these sources were written with an adult agenda. So it's with an adult interpretation of what was going on. And it's very difficult to get at the children's voices themselves so very few children wrote at the time they were children. I mean, many later went on to write say, memoirs or reflect upon their earlier years during the Civil Wars. But these, again, they're written from an adult perspective. So trying to understand what it was actually like to be a child during the Civil War can be quite tricky. We have to infer it from other sources. So I mean, we look at the adult reports or record-keeping and we can use those to try and piece together what it might have been like for children. But accessing those children's voices can be very tricky.
1: And I guess we should discuss the general definition of children and childhood in the 17th century in England. And we should also beware not uh, imposing... 21st century attitudes on it. So how did the whole definition and attitude towards childhood and children differ then from what we know today?
2: In some respects, I don't think it differed a huge amount from how we might define children today. Contemporaries were very aware that there was a a stage in the life cycle that was called childhood, that they called children, and they could have really quite specific definitions of what constituted a child. So, for example, they might talk about infants who'd be babies up until the age of two. Then they might talk about children, which would be to about the beginning of adolescence. (laughs) And then they often might talk about either sort of adolescence or use young people up until about the age of 16. And then again, there was an, so could be another stage between about 16 to 18 and the beginning of independent adult life which was often placed somewhere around about the mid 20s but it was all very loosely defined it depended which author was writing at the time so many contemporaries wrote manuals on conduct literature and how to behave as a you know upstanding person at the time and these would give quite specific definitions of what it meant to be a child
1: when we think about tv programs of civil wars today, say in Africa or Asia, and we think of child soldiers. I think UNICEF defines child soldiers as any girl or boy below the age of 18 who is recruited or used by an armed force or an army in any capacity. Is that a definition that would be recognised by contemporaries in the 17th century in the British Civil Wars?
2: No, actually, I think that's something that would be quite different, that contemporaries wouldn't recognise as such at all. So the boundary at which it was considered acceptable to recruit someone into an army varied in terms of age. But generally, it was somewhere between 16 and 18. Most armies in the Civil War, and indeed European armies at the time, would recruit young men from around about the age of 16. Interestingly, the parliamentarian impressment ordinance, the ordinance, the legislation that was there to conscript people into the army when they were short of numbers, that set the age boundary at 18. So that would be similar to a modern definition. But I think that many contemporaries wouldn't have thought it unusual to have young men between the ages of around about 16 to 18 in the army at all. I think also contemporaries wouldn't recognise children included in an army in any capacity, so they would not recognise non-combatants as child soldiers. Contemporaries were very clear on the distinction between combatants and non-combatants. And the reason for this was, if someone that a contemporary regarded as a child picked up arms and started fighting... They were regarded as a combatant and they were therefore exempted from any protection that children could normally culturally, traditionally expect to receive.
1: And what do we know about the actual presence of children or child soldiers in either the royalist or the parliamentarian armies?
2: So we know that there were children in both combatant and non-combatant roles. There were certainly young people who fought in the Civil War armies. And there was a whole host more of both boys and girls who carried out non-combatant roles, but roles that were still essential to the daily functioning of an army. So, for example, We know there were boys who carried messages or assisted officers as pages. We have evidence for trumpeters' boys. And we also think, although the evidence is a little more sketchy, but we think that there are also girls who assisted with tasks such as laundry and tending the sick and preparing food.
1: And do we have any sense of how many children would be in either the large armies or participating in some of the skirmishes and sieges that were such a feature of the wars. Because the
2: presence of children in armies tends to, they're there almost in an unofficial capacity, particularly those who are performing non-combatant roles. They often tend to go under the radar a little bit. So it's tricky to get a rough even a rough estimate, really, of the numbers. And I think also a lot of it varied from army to army. So we do know, for example that the Scottish army that invaded England on behalf of the parliamentarian cause in 1644, they were accompanied by a very large number of women and children who were the families of the soldiers who were fighting in that army. And again, those families were very important to the functioning of that army, performing roles such as laundry and food provision and healing the sick. And certainly in many contemporary European armies, we know that the presence of those soldiers' families, those women and children, could be at least as numerous as the number of soldiers themselves. In terms of children who would have, or what we would regard as children, who would have perhaps been fighting themselves, it would be difficult to know how many of those there would be, because... We have maybe records of numbers of soldiers in a company or a regiment, but very little further detail is given.
1: Were there differences between the two armies?
2: I feel the differences were more ones of social groupings rather than between the two sides, although they perhaps came out, those were perhaps more noticeable on one side or another. So obviously, we have to be careful in assuming that the social elites gravitated towards the Royalists and those from the lower orders gravitated towards Parliament. We know that's not true. However, perhaps the most notable examples of children, of young noblemen following their fathers into a regiment was perhaps on the Royalist side. We perhaps have more numerous examples of that. In comparison one of the ways that Parliament filled up its ranks was to recruit large numbers of apprentices. So right at the beginning of the war in 1642, Parliament passed an ordinance which said that any apprentices that enlisted into their armies could count their time spent in the army towards their apprenticeship. So, for example, if they were bound to their master for a period of Seven years, and say they spent six months in the army, those six months could be counted towards their term of seven years. And likewise, Parliament said that masters were bound to take their apprentices back after their army service. Now, of course, the flaw in this plan was that the war lasted a lot longer than anyone expected it to. It was, you know, the usual thing. Everyone thought it would be over by Christmas. But in fact, the war lasted obviously for several years. And for some apprentices, their term of their apprenticeship had actually expired by the time that they had finished doing their army service. So they expected to be made freemen. So that caused, as you can imagine, a few problems between themselves and their masters. But thinking socially, the large numbers of apprentices in the parliamentarian army did, of course, attract attention. Many people commented on it, and these were seen, even though they were obviously apprentices to perhaps reasonably well to do tradesmen and merchants, they weren't noblemen. And so they could be the victim of perhaps social snobbery. And so it was like, oh, well, you know, the parliamentarians, they're recruiting large numbers of apprentices in their armies. Oh, I'm not sure about that. You know, they're ruffians. And, I should add in here, apprentices are often associated with unruly behaviour and disruptiveness. So it was a bit of a PR issue. Some commentators said, well, you know, you have apprentices in your army. They could be unruly, disruptive, give an army a bad reputation, however they behaved in reality. And so, interestingly, a young man who was an apprentice could be talked about differently in one army to, say, a young man who was the son of a nobleman in another army.
1: Can you give us some contemporary examples of these different attitudes to noblemen's sons or apprentices?
2: Yes, certainly. So I think one of my favourite examples, if you like, where contemporaries were observing the activities of young men who were from a socially elite background, regards Christopher Ray. So, Christopher Ray was a gentleman. Uh, he was later Sir Christopher Ray. And he was involved in the fighting on the Royalist side. And at the time, he was only 15 years of age, so quite young, as we might think. And even contemporaries thought that he was young, obviously, to be in that position. And he was a captain in the Royalist army in Lord Moan's regiment. And he was actually taken prisoner. He managed to then escape. And the way that this episode was recounted by a royalist observers was actually rather like a jape. It was a, a jolly episode of daring do, as we can hear in this excerpt here.
3: And Captain Ray, since Sir Christopher Ray, being then but 15 years of age and little of stature, but a sprightly gallant youth, then commanded a company in the Lord Moen's regiment that had the vanguard. He was taken prisoner and carried down to Oakhampton, but the troopers that took him, being careless of him and thinking him to be but a trooper's boy, he took the opportunity to make his escape in the night. And three days after, he returned into Cornwall with a dozen or thirteen musketeers of the stragglers that he had recollected.
2: So that episode was in the memoirs of Ralph Hopton, who was in the Royalist Army. So he was obviously motivated to portray that in the best possible light. But I think that social status is important in that. Christopher Ray is just fulfilling the kind of role that it was considered appropriate for a young gentleman to do. In contrast... The way that people spoke about apprentices tended to be, as I say, tied up with ideas of disruption, of bad behaviour, and something that could reflect badly on an army. So the example we're about to hear now comes from John Taylor, the so-called water poet.
4: It was never known that all soldiers should be found to be all saints or that a whole army consisted of none but godly and religious persons. Some may be drawn out of blind zeal by opinion and imagined good intents. Also, there are great numbers that bear arms more for company than conscience, more for spoil and plunder than for the cause which they seem to stand for. Some plunge deep in debts, run to the wars for acquaintances, and perhaps pay their creditors with cutting their throats. Some servants and apprentices turn raw soldiers to free themselves from their master's command. Some felons, ravishers, manslayers and murderers run to the wars to escape the hangman. And of all these virtuous sorts of vermin is the whole force compacted.
2: Now, John Taylor had royalist sympathies. So for him, he regarded the apprentices who fought in the parliamentarian army. He wanted to portray them in the worst possible light. And so it's not surprising, perhaps, that he likens them to ungodly people in the same line as those who come to plunder or perhaps who were murderers trying to run away from the law. He was grouping them together with those type of people. But I think that social status is important in that. If there were lots of young noblemen, they were portrayed in a good way. So why should young men who were apprentices be considered any different And so it has to come down to a difference in social status.
1: We've talked so far about essentially about boys. What about girls? Do we have any insights into what, if any, role they played and how they were viewed by other people?
2: Well, is ever trying to pin down the role of females in the Civil War can often be a lot more trickier. And again, it comes down to a problem of record keeping. They often escape under the radar. We know from contemporary European armies that girls often assisted their mothers in tasks such as washing soldiers' clothes or providing medical care or preparing food for soldiers who were usually their father or perhaps another man, a man with whom their mother was having a relationship. And so we can perhaps... Reasonably assume that girls provided similar roles in the Civil War as well. We do have records for payments to maids who were paid for fetching or carrying things, often foodstuffs, food and drink. Or we have records for maids who served laundresses, for example. And these perhaps could have been young girls. But we do have a slight problem with definition here. Maid could refer to either a young unmarried woman or it could refer to a domestic servant. And often the two were linked. But we should bear in mind in this period that often women didn't marry to their mid to late 20s. So again, someone who was referred to as a maid may not be a child as we might regard them today. They could be of an age that we would regard as an adult. So we have to be careful of assuming that these were particularly young women, although there is a possibility that they were. The one thing I would say is often unmarried women could have a similar sort of status as children. You weren't regarded as an adult until you were married as a girl.
1: And how were these children protected, if at all, by the current rules of war?
2: So the laws and ordinances which govern behaviour in the armies during the Civil War were quite clear on this. And I should add that these laws and ordinances of war were often quite shared between the sides. They were quite similar and they were based on similar rules that were established practice across Europe as well. And these usually included some sort of ruling about protection for the vulnerable. So this would typically include women, children, the elderly and clergymen as well. And these stated that these groups were to be protected, they weren't to be attacked by any soldiers, and if soldiers did attack them, they would be punished. However, as I mentioned, they were quite clear that if any of these groups did take up arms, they were to be excluded from this protection.
1: And are there examples from either side where this protection failed?
2: So to give a couple of examples, after the Battle of Naseby in 1645, the victorious parliamentarian army started to attack the women and children who were accompanying the royalist armies. So these were the wives and the women and their families who were following the soldiers into battle. And many of these we know were actually quite socially elite women as well from the subsequent records. And the parliamentarian forces killed many of these women and children and injured many more as well. And there is an attempt at retrospective justification. So, the parliamentarian press tried to claim that these women were witches or they were Irish or that they had picked up knives and started threatening the soldiers, all of which would have exempted them from the normal protections of war. Now, a lot has been written on this, most notably by the historian Mark Stoyle. And there have been various efforts to explain what has happened. But to my mind, by and large, what we're seeing here is an army running amok in hot blood and just totally ignoring the rules and the conventions of warfare and attacking innocent women and children. Perhaps a, a slightly different example from later in the war comes from the, the siege of Colchester in 1648. This was a very bitter siege. and uh, Many parliamentarians bitterly resented that the civil wars had been opened up again. They felt that they had won victory fair and square in 1646, that God had spoken and that the royalists had gone against God's providence in reopening the war again in 1648 and caused a lot of unnecessary bloodshed. So the siege of Colchester was fought within this context. It was a long and drawn out siege and one that Fairfax perhaps conducted in what you might regard as uncharacteristic harshness. And as part of his tactics to pressurise the garrison into surrendering was he paraded the son of one of the garrison's leaders, Arthur Capel. He paraded his young teenage son around the walls in an attempt to pressurise his father to surrender. His son was effectively being held hostage And this was something that attracted a lot of bitterness from the royalists in turn. They thought that this was against the laws and customs of war, that this child was being used in a hostage situation. A lot was made of the conditions in which he was held in. They were suggesting that he was held in a barn and be made to sleep on straw and treated in a way that was unacceptable, especially, again, for a gentleman's son or a nobleman's son it was very important that Capel's son was from the social elite as well. So the way that this was described by contemporaries, again, it was important within the social context as well. We can hear one of the contemporary reports from a royalist about the treatment of Capel's son here.
3: At 16 years of age, in the middle of June 1648, when his father, my lord Capel, defended the town of Colchester against the rebels, a sergeant with two men came to Haddam to carry him to the general at the lager before Colchester. He was then very sickly, and has scarce ever rid on horseback or been out of the family. He was so ill-used that he was forced sometime to lie in a cabin, and sometimes in a little thatched house, with two soldiers lying by him in straw, and every day was paraded round the works.'
2: So that was actually from a letter that was written to the House of Lords complaining about the treatment of Capel's son, which the writer felt was going against the laws
1: of war. It's meaning if we now move away from the battlefield and child soldiers and talk about the effects of the Civil War, which was, I think, a particularly bloody one with very high casualty rates even compared with, say, the First World War. This must have had a tremendous effect on families all over Britain because there must have been a significant number of orphans. Do we have any sense of how many children would have been orphaned by the wars?
2: That's a really interesting question. As I think probably listeners to this podcast will be aware, and it's a well-known figure generally in Civil War historiography, but a greater percentage of the population of England or Wales died in the Civil Wars than died in both World Wars combined. So that gives you a sense of the scale of the casualty rates in this conflict. So we can therefore presume from that that the numbers of orphans would have been quite high. It's not unusual to be orphaned in this period. It was expected that many many children would have lost one or other or both parents just to, in the normal course of life in this period due to you know mortality rates with infectious diseases and malnutrition and that sort of thing as well. So war definitely compounded the number of. Orphans that you would usually expect in this period. I think it's also worth noting that children would have experienced hardship not just from being made orphans but also from the effects of the war as well so many children were displaced by war as well they were forced to leave their home regions you know usually with their families but not always so for example there were said to be hundreds of children from devon in london during the civil wars as they'd escaped the fighting there And also, using another Devon example, we know that children were particularly susceptible to the diseases that were exacerbated in this period by armies marching across the country. So, armies would march from one locality to another, often bringing disease with them. And records from Collaton and Devon have shown that infant mortality from disease in this period is higher than what we would normally expect as well. So it wasn't just losing parents, but children could become refugees or susceptible to disease and things like that as well.
1: And how did the state, if at all, respond?
2: So although in theory an orphan could claim a pension from the state, obviously these would only be the parliamentarian orphans and also the money available was often quite limited. So priority was always given to the wounded soldiers, and after that, the widows, and finally the orphans. So by the time all the other pensions had been given out, the amount left over for orphans was often much less. So A lot of the emphasis on care reverted back to surviving kin. So efforts would be made to track down relatives, especially those who the state felt could provide for that child. So they'd be put into the care of another relative Sometimes provision was available at the parish level, so parishes would pay poor relief to orphans, which they would do normally to orphans anyway, regardless of whether they were war orphans or not. And often orphans sometimes were reduced to begging, so the community would step in and provide charity to them as well. I think I should also stress that it was something that Parliament took seriously in, both in their proclamations and also something that they were held to account with. So when the soldiers were protesting against Parliament in 1647, it was a duty that the soldiers reminded Parliament about. And many, particularly military people themselves, put pressure on Parliament to honour their commitments to the children of those who died in their service. And we can hear one example of this about the children of Colonel John Fox. To the Honourable the
5: Commissioners for Compounding. The humble petition of Captain Humphrey Tudman on the behalf of Humphrey and John Fox, children of the late Colonel John Fox. The said Colonel Fox, within short time departing this life, and the Parliament taking into their considerations the disconsolate and miserable condition of his wife and children, did by order dated the 12th of November 1650 authorise and require your honours to permit the children of the said deceased Colonel Fox to hold and enjoy the quiet possession of the said manor of Edgebaston and the lands of Robert Middlemore, lying in several parishes in the county of Worcester. Now, for as much as they have hitherto had no benefit of the arrears in the said treasurer's hands, by means whereof in all probability, without your honour's speedy assistance, they will be utterly ruined and undone, your petitioner humbly prays your honours that the great and inconceivable wants and necessities of these poor orphans may be taken into your serious consideration, and that pity may move you to commiserate them of whom your petitioner dares confidently affirm their cause to be greater objects of your pity. They, being left destitute of all manner of relief, save what lies within the power vested in your honours by the Act and Ordinances of Parliament. Otherwise, In their want, your and the Commonwealth's enemies say in reproach, and especially in the county where his service was so eminent, these are the children of Colonel Fox.
2: This shows that it was not just the children of the socially elite that contemporaries believed Parliament should look after, but also the children from those further down the social scale. So, of course, John Fox was a colonel and in some sense in a socially elevated position. He was not from the sort of background that contemporaries might have expected a colonel to be recruited from.
1: And this government scheme, which involved the petitions being submitted to Parliament has created a unique source for you and other historians to understand the lives and the plights of orphans of these wars. Can you give us some further examples?
2: Yes, so this government pension scheme generated a lot of paperwork. So those who applied to receive one of these pensions had to submit a petition to their local court of quarter sessions. So these were the courts that met within each county. And all of these petitions have been gathered by the Civil War Petitions Project and are available online at www.civilwarpetitions dot a c dot u k and these include all the petitions that were made in the name of or on the behalf of orphans in the civil war as well
1: so can you give us some examples of the stories that this has uncovered?
2: Yes, I think what this resource perhaps reveals best for us is the various tactics that were used to access pension money on behalf of these orphans. So, for the orphans who had lost their father, but they still had their widowed mother, often the widow would make an application for a pension in their own right as a war widow. But it would be very important to these war widows to mention their children as well, and mention that these children were now fatherless and without the income that their father had previously provided. And we can hear one example here from the war widows of Wybunbury in Cheshire.
4: To the honourable and right-worshipful at this present sessions, the humble petition of Elizabeth Lindock, widow, Margaret Perrin, Joanne Hoole, and Judith Hampton, widow, inhabitants of the township of Wye etc. Humbly shows that your poor petitioners, being most of them very aged and decrepit, and in a poor and mean condition, having little subsistence but what must proceed from the charity of well-disposed neighbours, most of them having formally obtained orders from former sessions to be entered in the role as pensioners and have since received the same accordingly and it being indeed all the livelihood some of them have. They must humbly pray this honourable court will still please to continue your said poor petitioners as pensioners to receive the same as formerly and the said poor widows and fatherless children will have cause to bless God for you and to pray for your honour's happiness long to continue, and that God that has promised to hear the prayers of such will reward you. These poor widows' conditions being very deplorable, and such as is here truly laid down, we have made bold upon their request to subscribe the same and to become supplicants to this honourable bench on their behalf. Edward Mannering, Pastor William Bradmore; Robert Withers John Ulton Wardens
2: Now, what I particularly like about that example is the way that the widows had grouped together. They'd found strength in numbers. So they'd found themselves in this vulnerable position. They were on their own with their children and they wanted to find ways to provide for their family. So they clubbed together for a group effort to apply for a pension together. So in other instances, we can see how other adults could make an application for a pension on behalf of an orphan. So these adults could be either another family member who is now caring for that orphan. Perhaps it was a distant relation or they were the grandparents of the child or it could be an adult who was perhaps held some kind of position within the community, so a church warden or an overseer of the poor who'd suddenly found this child perhaps begging or who needed care or who was receiving parish charity. And I want to give one example of such a petition here, and this is a petition that was made on behalf of Orphan Ravenscroft, again from Cheshire.
6: To the Honourable Humphrey Macworth, Esquire Chief Justice of Chester. The most humble petition of Margaret Ravenscroft on behalf of a poor orphan. In all humble manner, showing that one William Ravenscroft, a soldier under Colonel Gerard, about eight years past, lost his life at Warrington in the Parliament's service. And his wife, dying on childbed, both of them, by the act of God, thus disposed of, left behind them a poor infant. For preservation whereof, your petitioner, though a very poor woman, has endeavoured for maintenance, but is no longer able to yield the child subsistence unless some pious and compassionate course be thought upon. Being made, please, Your Honour, great pity, after so long succour, to be forced to expose it to famishing and begging. The premises is considered. Your Honour's petitioner most humbly begs in the name of this poor, friendless, fatherless and motherless orphan, and for God's cause that Your Honour will be pleased to set down such order and course for the future, as that some provision of relief may be made, in this case, for the reasons aforesaid.
2: So what is nice about this petition is we can see that that one was successful and the orphan was awarded a pension of 40 shillings a year. Here we have a petition that was made on behalf of an orphan, Mary Ackers of Whiston in Lancashire, by her local community in 1659.
5: To the right worshipful, the Justices of Peace and quorum at the General Sessions at Wigan. The humble petition of the inhabitants of Whiston in the parish of Prescott on the behalf of Mary Ackers, daughter of John Ackers, late of Whiston aforesaid deceased, an orphan about seven years old, shows that her late father was a soldier in the Parliament's service under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Aspinwall and has left her in a very sad and deplorable condition, destitute of all relief and not anything whereby to keep her alive, only what she gets by begging from the charitable hands of her neighbours. So that your petitioners humbly crave that your worships would take the premises into your serious consideration and appoint some way of relief for your poor petitioner's orphan, without which she will be in danger to starve. Your humble petitioners, Edward Dean, Edward Derbyshire, Henry Horson, William Webster, John Ackers church wardens and overseers.
2: It was important to local communities to help an orphan get a war pension from the state as this would remove the burden for paying for an orphan either by charity from the parish or from local neighbours.
1: So it's been, these are really fascinating insights into children and particularly, in this instance, orphans after the civil wars have ended. How would you summarise the experiences of children on and off the battlefields during the British Civil Wars? And how do you think that compares with the experiences of modern children during such conflicts?
2: So I think what the example of modern conflicts tells us when thinking about the past is to be careful about assuming what we think it must have been like for children and for making prejudgments. So, for example, research in modern conflicts amongst child soldiers today has shown that actually many children have taken pride in their war service. They're proud to serve their cause and that they can fight with distinction and that they are diligent soldiers. Now, of course, we might abhor having child soldiers at all and think that they should not be fighting at all. But we should not assume that the child regards themselves as a victim. And again, many children who are providing non-combatant roles take pride in the fact that they're able to provide for their family and they like being part of the military community and having a group around them. So we should be careful of assuming that everything in the Civil War was terrible for children. And of course, I'm not suggesting that it was wonderful. There are many aspects of conflict that are dreadful, and you know the death and destruction that children must have seen and experienced would have been horrendous. But I just want to hold back a little bit from assuming that these children would have regarded themselves as victims. We know that modern child soldiers sometimes enjoy their war experiences. And so it is possible that children in the Civil War perhaps enjoyed their experiences, or some of their experiences too. So I think in summary, we can say that we do not know for sure what it must have been like for children in the Civil War, but we should be careful of making modern assumptions about their experiences.
1: Ismini, thanks very much indeed for this incredibly vivid picture of childhood experiences during the British Civil Wars, which are obviously very different to those that I read as a child in The Children of the New Forest. Thank you, and we'll look forward to talking, I hope again, about other aspects of the Civil Wars, which you have revealed in the work of the Civil War Petitions Project
0: thank you.
2: That would be great, Mike. Thank you very much.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this programme. If you'd like to learn more about the stories of individual children and their families, you can search the website of the Civil War Petitions Project, civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. And while you're there, you can read the blog, For the Dead Father's Sake, Orphans, Petitions and the English Civil Wars. To ensure you don't miss any of our future programmes, subscribe to our newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, at our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk. There, you can also listen to more podcasts by leading historians, exploring the causes, conflicts and consequences of the wars across the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland.